Welcome to the Confidence Mastery Unlock Your Life podcast. Covering the most essential areas of personal development for ultimate success. Your health, wealth and happiness. Your host, Natalie Bailey, the confident entrepreneur. Natalie is a confidence coach, property developer and bright red-haired fitness fanatic who is going to take you on a journey to confidently create a more inclusive, more successful and fulfilled life. Get listening, take action and unleash your inner confidence. Thank you very much for coming on the um, Confidence Master and Not For Life podcast, Gerald. Thanks for inviting me, Natalie. Nice to see you again, albeit virtually. Virtually, yes. Oh, I'll tell you what I should do is close my WhatsApp because that will go crazy. Um, oh, it's the noise in the background. Okay, so I guess my first question is, what made you say yes to coming on and having this chat with me? Because I love you, Natalie. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, for a little I bit of background, I miss, I, miss, well. I miss you too, like in person. And um, I was thinking about when we went for sushi and how I managed to get my mum to eat sushi. <laughs> oh, yes. Didn't does she not? No, right. no, she's not a big fan and she said she really enjoyed it. So I we live like, for it. I, I'm addicted to it. I live for it. Where's the where's your favorite sushi place? It's um it's actually, you know, there's a lot of very expensive places in London that are not as good, but there's a place called uh, it used to be called Atari Yar. It was just off Oxford Street, the back of Selfridges, and then they changed it to Sushi Rama or something ridiculous. Um but it was it's not as good, but I still it's still probably my favorite. Um because there's certain things that I really love, like sea urchin, um, and which is very, very expensive. But there, yeah. it's not too ridiculous. And I like eel. Um, okay. Very, very, very sort of uh, unusual. Have you so, been able to have any through this lockdown period? Well, there's a place near where I live that does uh, takeaway sushi. And supposedly he was the chef. You always hear these stories. He was the chef chef at Zuma, which is the best Japanese restaurant in London. But the sushi's not of that. It's okay. But unless the sushi is really good, really fantastic, and freshly made right in front of you, then forget it. I mean, the supermarket sushi shouldn't be called sushi. It doesn't even taste like sushi. So sushi's got to be really unbelievably fresh. You've got to feel like you're swimming in the sea when you eat it the taste of the sea otherwise just yeah it's just not not all that we used to when i lived in mallorca they had a sushi counter in carrefour and they used to give you like free samples obviously to try and get you to to buy it and i think that was probably my first taste of it um because who doesn't like to try stuff for free (laughs) i've had it in mallorca funny enough it's been very good i had it as a takeaway place there yeah there was a really good place called, oh, I don't remember the name of it, Sakana or something like that, um, quite near the, the beachfront in Palma Nova. Yeah, yeah. That was a good place. But it's not something I found in Barbados, though. Are you what, sorry? It's not something I found in Barbados, though. Uh, no. No, it's not that popular in Barbados, is it? But there's some very good restaurants there. Uh, we were there last year. Um, but it's ridiculously expensive for what it is, I think. Everything in Barbados is expensive unless it is rum. <laughs> right. Unless it's what? Unless it's rum. rum. Okay. Rum is cheap. Everything else is expensive. Yeah, I don't drink rum. I drink everything else. I think if you lived here, you would drink rum. <laughs> I went to the... Um, the Mount Gay Distillery Tour. So they take you around, they show you how everything everything's made. You get to try the different types of rums that they have. And then after they had a cocktail making session, which I wasn't going to do because um, I was going to take my mum when she came because she came for Christmas and New Year. And then we didn't manage to get to go. But it was good that when I went to the tour, 
and they said oh we've got an extra table you should come and you know just just stay and do it so rather than just going and having a look around this like museum I ended up leaving quite drunk because of all the rum they gave me (laughs) it's something about you know having rum in Barbados or having you know the uh, glue vine on the slopes that doesn't taste the same when you think oh I really enjoyed that and you bring it home and you you have it in rainy London or something it's just not the same it's like having a nice cold beer in the sun isn't it exactly you've got to have everything right you've got to you know you wonder why sometimes you like a particular wine uh at a restaurant or you don't like it at home or vice versa or you don't like that you didn't enjoy that beer but you can't understand why because you loved it a few months ago there's a lot more to it you know it's the mood that you're in um it's what you've eaten it's uh who you're with sometimes as well the what sorry who you're with sometimes as who well. you're with exactly the company that's a very good point that's another ingredient absolutely where's well, your I'm, favorite place that you've ever been to the the best place i've ever been to uh well i i think probably um in portugal because i'm so relaxed when i'm on holiday i mean there's some wonderful restaurants around here i live on the thames valley and you've got mm. the fat duck and the waterside inn but somehow being on holiday you really enjoy it that much more and there's a restaurant in uh, portugal in uh, near valdelobo armensil called maria's uh, and it's right on the beach and uh, you see the sunset going down. Actually, I mention it in my book because it's just the most wonderful place. There is like fantastic. There's another actually restaurant called Passos there as well on the beach. I have to mention that as well. So the fish in Portugal um, in the middle of the summer, eating in your swimsuit and t-shirt, takes a lot of beating. Will that be the first place you go back to once all of this craziness is? Well, I love skiing as well. I miss that. Yeah. There's, you know, when the sun, I'm a sort of fair weather skier, when the sun is out and the snow is perfect and you haven't skied for too long and you stop for lunch in a mountain restaurant in the warm sunshine, even though the temperature is minus two or something. But it never feels that cold. No, you have some sort of fantastic local dish like tartar fleck or something, and you're so hungry because you've been skiing. I mean, that also takes a bit of beating. So, But the fact is that this might sound a bit ridiculous, but my wife has said that we are not going away abroad even after the pandemic because the dog, who you know, <laughs> yeah. is uh, 12 and a half, and we left him when we went to Portugal. We left him. And he wasn't great when we came back and he's limping a lot. And I just, he really, you know, is old and he does. I know it sounds ridiculous that he rules the ro- roost, but we would feel, we would find it very difficult to leave him at the moment. The dogs are part of the family though, aren't they? Absolutely. He's the most yeah. important person in the family. Certainly more important than me. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Uh very happy because I adore him. He has been great through the lockdown. Fantastic company. He is always happy to see me when I come home. Uh, he's just adorable. As a lot of people know that, can identify that with dogs. I mean, they, they've, dogs have been the star of this lockdown, not so Tom Moore or the mm-hmm. other guy who does the exercises. It's... Um, it's been dogs that have seen, that have taken us through this. They're such terrible. a great company, aren't they? And I think yeah. there's going to be probably a bit of separation anxiety when it comes to people going back to work because the dogs are now used to people just being like they're humans, being in in their lives all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, and these idiots have just bought dogs because of a lockdown. And then when the lockdown ends, just leave them, you know, it's just stupid. I mean, but maybe they'll learn once they have a dog, how important the dog is and how you must treat it. 
mm-hmm. look after it and love it and uh, don't leave it and make sure that you know it's looked after and you know that's why our dog is such a fabulous dog because of the love that it's had you know you see other dogs that are just treated like dogs it's <laughs> 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 a terrible thing to do what a way to what a thing to do to treat a dog like a dog <laughs> honestly a dog like a dog the world coming to so is 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 he helped you i suppose mentally through this lockdown as well i feel i feel like there's been a lot of mental health issues of people feeling isolated not being able to see people um not looking after their health and things like that um and having that extra companion has that made a difference well unfortunately i can't take him on long walks because of his limp although his limp at the moment has got a lot better miraculously uh but you can only take him for walk for like 20 minutes 25 minutes so what i've done in this lockdown as I've always cycled 25 miles every day anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I've now added is a two-hour walk uh, in the afternoon um, and listening to stuff. Um, I don't listen to podcasts like everybody else does. I listen to sort of BBC radio plays, sort of um, sort of old-fashioned type of things like mm-hmm. uh, Dickens and that sort of stuff. Uh, and you really get carried away with it all, you know. Uh, so that's been very therapeutic to go on these long walks. Uh, and I've also done, can't go to the gym, so I've got this TRX, you know, with the rubber bands that you clip to the door. Yep. Unfortunately, my son walked in and I went flying with that, so you've got to be careful, uh, which has been the highlight of the lockdown for him, seeing me go tumbling into uh, all the books and going over. But... Uh, yeah, so it's the exercise that has kept me sane. Because, you know, as you know, I do a lot of speaking, uh, travelling around Europe and uh, the country, which I absolutely love. And that's been taken away from me. Uh, and I'm really, you know, that's really been the only thing that I've focused on, mm-hmm. uh, have been upset about, is the fact that I can't do my speaking. And I think about that every day. Uh, and feel sort of that I'm really want to get back to it, and, and we would really, I'm really looking forward to going back to it. But you know, we keep getting false dawns. Mm-hmm. Lots of I, I feel like there's lots of like lies and manipulation, and you know, there's promises that are never upheld, and having things that you love and enjoy taken away from you makes you feel almost like it's like we're prisoners in our own houses yeah well after the uh, speech that i'm as you haven't mentioned it i thought i would uh, 30 years ago uh, in in april uh i actually self-isolated it's a big anniversary before. this year then yes which i won't be celebrating <laughs> uh, i uh self-isolated before it was a thing uh because i was in a deep depression yeah uh because i'd lost all my money lost my job and uh just didn't really you know believe what everybody said about me that i was unemployable and uh spent a lot of time watching countdown and staying in so this has been like a doddle for me compared to the seven years that I spent in the wilderness. <laughs> You've done it before. What was the, the catalyst for change from that? It was that my wife threatened to throw me out unless I made some money because we had so much in the way of debts and stuff. And uh, I was just just not wanting to play anymore. So she threatened, sometimes you do need somebody to give you mm-hmm. a kick out the backside in your in that situation. So um, one thing that I was doing was cycling and I could, and that was the only time that I was feeling okay. Uh, I had been prescribed some antidepressants, which really, although it made you feel better, it was you turned into this sort of zombie type stuff. I'm not knocking it. It might work for a lot of other people, but it didn't work for me because I just sort of went into a shell and 
wasn't very communicative. So it was the cycling that made me feel good. Uh, you get the endorphins and stuff like that. And also makes you think clearly. So I could see the benefits. This was 1997. I could see the benefits of exercise for the first time. Because, you know, when you're running a public company, which I did for years, workaholic, you don't really have a lot of time for doing a lot of exercise. So yeah. getting the fresh air and doing the, the cycling and started feeling I could see the benefits of it. And in 1997, there wasn't anything around where I lived near Henley on Thames that uh, there wasn't a, a luxury health club. There wasn't any health club. So I, I had this idea of opening the health club. Uh, why? It was a bit ambitious because I didn't have any money. I was completely wiped out, you know, I had debts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I um, found a book warehouse, an old book warehouse, which I... Uh, put in solicitor's hands, even though I was not in a position to complete on the deal because it was three quarters of a million pound freehold. But it would work well to convert it to a luxury health club. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to raise some money and uh, failed miserably. But then I came across this idea of actually selling the membership, even though I hadn't bought the premises, mm -hmm. uh, on the basis that I would waive the joining fee if people would give me their direct debits uh, with an opening sort of three months on. And on that, on the back of that, uh, that, I put an advert in the local papers offering this deal uh, with a drawing of how it's going to look. And, of course, I made it a lot better than it <laughs> ever turned out to be. Uh, and I got 800 people to sign up for it, uh, even though I hadn't signed up on the deal because I hadn't earned money. Yeah. But when I got the 800 direct debits, uh, the banks could then see that there was definitely... It was uh, a viable option. It was a viable... But we, you see a lot of people do sort of demographics and they do surveys and they do marketing and they go to endless, you know, things to try and discover where, whether a venture's worth doing or not. But this was a, a really good way of doing it because the proof was in the pudding. If people didn't sign up for it, then there wasn't a need for it. But if they did, there was. Simple. Yeah. Let's not make it so complicated. That is the best market research you can do. People do all these surveys and spend, you know, a huge amount of time analysing something. It really comes to nothing. But this was the real proof of it. And uh, I sold it two and a half years later for £4 million. So that put me back into the game, which I then invested half of that into an online business, which was also very successful. So... <laughs> It was a great relief to, especially to my wife, <laughs> uh, wow. that I was uh, working again and uh, had a few, uh, you know, we were talking about holidays before. I had, during that seven years, I didn't go on any holiday. I didn't have any money to go on any holiday. So when I started going on holiday, then I started appreciating them. Does it, does it make you appreciate different things in life, having had that period of depression? Yeah, I think that uh, people that have sailed through life without any setbacks lack a certain amount of empathy for other people and sympathy. I think that to be part of the human race, you have to have suffered annoyingly, perhaps mm -hmm. as much as I did. But it certainly makes me appreciate what I've got now, albeit nothing like what I did have. But I, uh, I'm much happier. I know I don't look happy. That's my face. I'm just looking at my face in Zoom. It doesn't look very happy. <laughs> but, it's like very uh, resting bitch face. This is just me. <laughs> no, I do appreciate things much more. I was guilty of not appreciating anything uh, when I was young. It's like these footballers who drive around in Bentleys in their mid-twenties. They feel, if anything, they feel somewhat guilty about their situation rather than in where you should really be enjoying your success, but somehow there's something there that stops you. Sometimes. How would you recommend people enjoy success then? Well, I think the problem with uh, success is it's never enough. It's like a drug that you want more and more of. Um, there's never, you never get to um, the winning post, if you like. You always feel that, you know, somebody else is doing better than you. You've got to keep going, which in business is 
it's good because you know it keeps you you have to keep reinventing yourself as a plug for my book again sorry but you have to keep pushing and but it but then that doesn't help doesn't make you happy and it doesn't help your family life or it doesn't you know because you become obsessed with success uh to the detriment of everything else mm-hmm. so my answer to your question is to try and strike a balance that there's always going to be somebody else that's more successful than you. There's always going to be somebody richer than you. But are you making enough money to enjoy yourself and make a good living? You don't, by being the richest person of all, of all your friends or in the world or anything like that, it's not going to make you any happier. What, what makes you happy is to have enough money to really enjoy yourself. Uh, it's all very well me saying that, but that's not what I preached uh, in my Ratner's days. You know, I... Uh, kept wanting to expand. We had 50% of the jewellery market in the UK with H. Samuel and Ernest Jones, Ratner's, Watch the Switzerland. But that wasn't enough for me. I had to go across the Atlantic and open up a 1,000 shops in America. Uh, you know, well, I didn't do that because I needed the money or, or why did I do that? Because, you know, you just get on this sort of treadmill that you can't stop yourself uh trying to make more money, trying to expand. But it comes to it comes to a point where it really does tend to, and I've just read this Robert Maxwell book, not that I'm comparing myself to him, but, you know, that's the extreme example of a megalomaniac, of somebody who doesn't know when to stop, who just has to have more self-gratification uh, has to be more and more powerful. And they say power corrupts, and, and to a certain degree, you know, that's true. Uh, so the answer to the question is know when to stop or, or know when to slow down, I suppose. I think this current period has forced a lot of people to slow down or stop or change and pivot, which is probably why everybody should read your new book about reinventing yourself, because... You have you people have had to. We've now got this online world where you know people can't get together because if if we were allowed to get together, we probably would have done this in person. So, what prompted you to to write that book and get that out there? Well, firstly, um, I didn't have anything to do because I wasn't doing any speeches. <laughs> not a good answer at all. Uh, but I, you know, I have to keep myself busy. Secondly, I I think that Rob and I were thinking about writing it before the uh, pandemic because of the fact that we were seeing uh, the benefits of actually um, taking the plunge and moving from one job to the next. That a lot of the most successful people were people that were moving around, that were not staying in that particular job. Uh, forever uh, and going for the safe option because it does take some balls to you know give up a highly paid job and do and and go into and jump in the deep end with something new but you know in the olden days with my father and grandfather were alive you had a job for life and in fact you even went into the same profession as your father yeah but now uh, that isn't the case anymore you know, you don't have a job for life. And people in America, uh, where one of my daughters lives in LA, they just uh, fire you every three months, wherever you go. And you just think, oh, well, what the hell, I'm going to the next job. Uh, they just, you know, if you don't, things just don't go well, you just get fired. Like, you know, it's a ridiculously brutal environment. Uh, they've never been like that in the UK for years and years. They would keep a lame duck going. Forever, you know, you wouldn't dream of firing, but people now are being fired. And quite frankly, um, they're doing you a favour if they fire you because if you're not performing, because you're not happy, um, nobody's happy in a job where they're not doing well. Mm-hmm. You know, to be successful in your job, you have to, firstly, you have to enjoy it, and two, you have to do it well. And if you're not, if neither of those are happening, then you should, you can move to somewhere where you are happy and you are doing well. And I've seen loads of examples of that with people that I know. So I'm very much in favour of reinventing yourself, of 
uh, just like if it's a bad marriage, you walk, uh, you don't, you only have one life and you don't suffer every day and wake up and think, oh God, I've got to do this again. Because you don't have to do that now. You know, you can do what you like and go your own way. Uh, and that's what the book really uh, gives people ideas of, of how to restart. I think that's really important because things can change and you don't have to stay doing things that make you unhappy or, you know, you you're, you get home and you're miserable every day. That's no way to live, is it? It's, it's, that's not what life's about. You should be able to do things that make you happy and be in relationships that you are happy in. So you see people, I suppose, trying other things or, you know, doing things behind people's backs because they're trying to find a way out rather than thinking, well, this isn't what this isn't working. So let me change it and just sticking with it because that's what they know. I think, well, I think people are, you know, are, are scared that, you know, they've got a mortgage, they've got kids uh, and they're terrified of ending up with nothing. Mm -hmm. But this is not I'm not talking now about the public sector, if you were a policeman or a nurse or a politician or, you know, I'm not talking about that because that that is fairly safe. What I'm talking about is the private sector, business. And in business, unless you're prepared to gamble and take risks, you're not going to get anywhere because that's what business is. It's about calculated risks. Nobody can see what the future is, but you take a punt. You have mm -hmm. a gut reaction. And as I said before, like the gym, you don't do over analysis and huge bring in huge studies and before you even take a step forward you have a gut reaction that this is going to work you like the idea of it mm -hmm. um you get excited like you do with your developments and stuff like that you can see that you can see that it's going to be successful you can't guarantee it as a risk but it's it that the actually the most exciting thing about business is gambling the risk as long as it's too great a risk. But I appreciate somebody, you know, with a family, something like that, is worried about risking it all. How, how do you help, how do you think people should mitigate those risks? Well, I think that there's this old saying, I don't know if it's true, that eight out of ten new businesses fail. So that's not very encouraging. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my view is, you don't have to have a new business to start again. You can take over somebody else's business. Now, funnily enough, if you take over somebody else's business, you don't have these terrible overheads that go with it. Let's say you wanted to buy a, a, a nail bar or something in, in, a, in, a, in a village, and there's already two or three, right? So by taking somebody else's nail bar that's not particularly successful, you're not adding to the competition because there's two or three nail bars in that place for a very good reason because that's about the limit to it. So you're not adding a fourth, which is always a drawback. You're also going to get their custom, whatever it is, even if it isn't great, you're going to get that law of following plus what you can contribute, you know, what you add added to it. You don't have to put in a shop front. You might not have to take staff. You All the fixtures and fittings and the the toe spas and all that sort of stuff are there um when we bought it you know when we went to town we much prefer to take out an existing jewelers than adding another jewelers more competition more costs and i think that's why um eight out of ten new businesses fail because of the huge startup costs that are involved but if you can avoid those by taking on somebody else's business, it doesn't have to be a successful business. And there's always people that want to sell their businesses. I think that's a better way to enter a market, whether it's a restaurant or a nail bar or hairdressers or whatever it is. Services that are currently shut down. <laughs> there's going to be so many opportunities that are knocked down prices. Why spend all that money, you know, with these horrendous costs of fitting it all out? starting from scratch that's why eight out of ten new businesses fail just walk into somebody else's business and everyone's got a price haven't they and their price is going to be pretty low uh, 
this year? That's a, that's a very good point, actually. Um, I've got a, 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 new, a, new, <laughs> a new idea. So I used to run a boxing gym in Mallorca and I would absolutely love to have another gym again. But what I really want is a space that people can get together, have that community aspect as well, and have it on a beach somewhere. So we can do the yoga on the beach, plus the gym, plus the the like community hub, if you like, um, combined with um, a healthy restaurant where people can get their protein shakes and they can get a, a good lunch where everything's not fried. Um, like in Barbados, everything is fried. <laughs> yeah. But thinking about that and like it's for me, I, yeah, even bananas, <laughs> everything is fine. <laughs> Like trying to eat healthy here is is quite difficult, but yeah. well, you're looking you're looking pretty good on it anyway. Thank you. Um, I've been here four months now. Hmm. Um, trying try to yeah. To answer your question, I mean, I think that is a gr- brilliant concept for a health club. And in fact, when I opened my health club in Henley, uh, and I went round to a lot of other clubs because I didn't know anything about the industry. Uh, pretending to be a potential member. Yeah. Uh, every club that I went to had a the, – the, the swimming pool was indoors. But when I opened my club, it turned out that I ran out of money and I couldn't – I built the swimming pool, but I couldn't cover it. So it had to be empty till I covered it. But – Everyone loved this outdoor pool, even though it went again and again. And everybody from other health clubs came like, what's this outdoor pool in February? You must be mad. I said, no, 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 they love it. We heated it up and it was very close to the changing room. So you could just come out, change rooms, jump straight in and jump straight back. But the fact that what that outdoor pool did was made the club a social environment where people, women could sit around chat to their friends, bring their kids. Uh, they didn't have to go in there and swim 50 bloody lengths and get up and have a cold shower and get changed. They could, and we, you know, we had a bar there, outdoor bar where we were serving alcohol and stuff. So we turned it more into a social pleasurable mm-hmm. venue rather than some place which is a torture chamber. Uh, where you go just completely for results. And that's one of the reasons why, particularly in Henley, which is a very affluent town, it was very successful. And people used to come up to me and they say, I love your outdoor swimming pool. And I didn't turn around and say, well, it's only outdoor because I couldn't afford a roof. (laughs) (laughs) But it just shows you, you know, um, that if you go against the trend, uh, and of course, when I sold it for three point nine million pounds, the people who bought it immediately put a roof on it, and their memberships went down by about a thousand. Wow! If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, well, people have got certain ways of doing things. Just like in the jewelry business, when I went into the jewelry business, you had to be prestigious. You had to have chandeliers. You had to have velvet pads. You had to have a manager in a three-piece suit. The shop had to look like a bank. But all of those things actually create a threshold barrier to, especially for young people. And it's young people that you want because they're the mm-hmm. ones that are getting engaged, buying engagement rings, which is the most profitable uh, item to sell. And yet they were scared of going into these jewelers because they were too posh. So what we did is we took down all those barriers, the bars on the windows, we priced everything, we played pop music, we got rid of the doors. Uh, you didn't have to wear a suit to work there. And people felt very receptive to that environment. And they could walk in thinking, well, I'm not going to have to spend an arm and a leg. So that went completely against the conventional wisdom of what a jeweler's should be is very prestigious. What gave you the idea to do that? I copied it from somebody else. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> We were doing, uh, when we were not doing well and we were posh like all the other jewellers, uh, there was a, we were doing particularly badly in Sunderland and Newcastle. 
And that was because this guy, Robert Anthony, had two, had a shop in Sutherland and Newcastle, and he was doing exactly what I was describing. So I went up, I uh, got a flight, and I arrived at 8 o'clock in the morning. I got a very early morning flight to Newcastle, came up to his shop, and he had a queue of people outside the shop. And it hadn't even opened yet. Uh-huh. Uh, so we never... <laughs> You know, jewellers were always empty, like if you had sort of half a dozen people in a day. And he had a queue of people. But he had all the cheap stuff, you know, the chains and the earrings. And uh, it was all under £10. And uh, it was all discounted. And um, he was shouting through a microphone about all the deals and stuff like that. And Sounds it, like that <laughs> the trade, yeah, it's like market trader, yeah. But every other trade really turned their nose up at it. They really hated him. Uh, but we copied him, and because we had a name, then Ratness was a prestigious name, believe it or not, uh, it worked much better for us. And when we bought H. Samuel, and we introduced that type of merchandise into H. Samuel and that type of marketing, that was when we really took off. And uh, when we bought H. Samuel, their profits were about three or four million. Within a year, H. Samuel's profits alone were 65 million. Uh, and we were taking more money per square foot than any other jeweler in Europe. Yeah. So um, both of those examples are where you take a particular industry and turn it on its head and basically do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Go against the masses. What's what yeah. Your most enjoyable pre-speech moment in in that business? Um, it was well. I had 150 shops in Ratners, and H. Samuel had 470 shops, and they were suffering at our hands. And then, in fact, at one stage, owned 20% of us. And all I ever heard was H. Samuel and this. They're the biggest in the country. and They're going to take us over and all that. Um, so it was. I went to see the chairman of H. Samuel and persuaded him that we should merge at least, uh, which he refused to do. Yeah. But his mother had a huge amount of shares. And cut a long story short, she, she, this sounds so ridiculous if you think I'd make it up, but it's absolutely true. She hated her son, thought he was an idiot, and sold the shares to me. Um, so people think their mother's bad. <laughs> and, uh, she, and then when I merged, I said, well, he, she says, oh, it's a great idea. She says, but why are you involving Anthony in it? But anyway, we did merge. And then uh, he was, she, his mother was right about him. He was a complete and utter idiot. Uh, and he spent that whole first summer when we took it over, going from Ascot to Wimbledon to the Prix de l'Anc de Triomphe to uh, wherever the next uh, place was. But, and he was drinking so much and stuff, and he was very rude to the staff. So I, I actually fired him after three months uh, and ended up, with instead of 130, 140 shops, which I had, 600 shops. So it was probably the acquisition of H. Samuel. But I would say that we were the one uh, retailer that was successful in America. A lot of retailers, you know, tried to transport their formula, however successful it was across the Atlantic, and fell from Marks and Spencers downwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't transport our formula. We uh, partnered up with uh, a very successful American organization there and Mm -hmm. we were successful in america so that was also a very proud moment but um that's the tragedy really of the speech that all of that good work uh becoming the world's largest jewelers from quite a low base was all ruined by a silly joke would you have said the same thing if you knew what was going to happen i'm sure many people have asked you that (laughs) Actually, it's the most ridiculous question anybody's ever asked me. <laughs> what a ridiculous question. Well, it's not that ridiculous, actually, because I do uh, enjoy my speeches. I enjoy that more than running Ratners or running the gym or running the uh, online jewellery business. I enjoy doing the speeches the most. Mm-hmm. Because I like making people laugh. 
course, that's what got me into trouble in the first place. But I wouldn't be doing those speeches if I hadn't made that big speech in 1991. Because you hear a businessman's speech, you know, at the Grosvenor House after dinner or Piccadilly, Manchester, uh, that, oh, I'm a huge success and I've gone from strength to strength. It's a bit of a bore. But when you get up and make a speech and say, well, I was voted the biggest corporate gaffe of all time, uh, then people, you've got their attention. So I wouldn't be making successful speeches all over the world mm -hmm. and loving doing it and itching to do it again if I hadn't made that speech in April 1991. So yeah, uh, it's no, maybe it's not the most stupid question anybody's ever asked me. <laughs> Well, that makes the whole sense. thing is totally ridiculous that it had all that publicity, to be honest, because when I turned up at the Albert Hall, uh, they asked me to go to door 13, a side door, where there was a huge committee of people waiting to meet me. Yeah. And I thought, what are all these people doing? But apparently it was for President de Klerk of South Africa, who um, was making a big keynote speech there and I got there early so it was a bit embarrassing that you know they all had to shake hands with me but he made this incredible speech about that he's going to end apartheid and that uh, we're going to be able to play cricket with them again you know you'd think that making a speech not persecuting black people anymore um, and ending apartheid would make the front pages of the paper the next day not my joke about the sherry decanter <laughs> <laughs> well, <they did. laughs> it's it's actually incredible when you think what makes news and yeah and, and the difference that it can have to people's lives and the way that they view you so if you you had all of that backlash and then you've come out the other side and now you're saying that actually you really like the speeches that you do now and and living and living that life instead Maybe that was a good thing because it's taught you about different things in life. It's given you the chance to work on on your health, to to appreciate that time and have the, a different kind of gratitude. Well, I think I'm a nicer person for it. A friend of mine said, Gerald, you're much nicer than you were. And I said, well, I'd rather be richer and not so nice. <laughs> but, uh, well, it is what it is. Well, money doesn't buy happiness, but I think it helps. If you haven't got any money, which I didn't for seven years, mm. you realise how important it is, yeah. When you've got credit card debts and uh, you've got to take your children out of school and um, you've got bailiffs banging on the doors, um, which I did for seven years, you then realise uh, how much, how important it is, yeah. So what's the thing that you're most grateful for now? Well, I suppose the fact that my wife stood behind me through all of that, because uh, she went through a very, people forget, you know, about the families and, you know, when, every, when somebody gets hurt, it's not only you that gets hurt, mm -hmm. it's all the people around you that suffer. And in my case, uh, a lot of people suffered, uh, a lot of our suppliers. A lot of my managers got fired by the people who came in after me. Uh, my family, you know, were, were, you know, lost, you know, had a different type of uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I did probably one of my daughters who did her a lot of good because she, uh, she, she started she working in a restaurant uh, as a waitress. And um, one day I came in uh, to my bedroom and all my ties were gone. And I had a fabulous collection of ties, like all these fabulous makes, uh, like Chanel and Ralph Lauren and uh, Gucci and um, Valentino, all these different ties which cost a fortune. They were all gone. And she was selling them in the restaurant for a pound each. Uh, I said, what are you doing? You've taken all my ties. She said, well, you've lost your job. You don't need any ties anymore, do you? <laughs> so, she, you know, good for her. You know, she made a few quid. <laughs> and she's done very well since. So, uh, 
sometimes you know your children you could you spend too much time or attention or money on them and when you just leave them to get on themselves they do much better what's your proudest moment in life then uh I think just the fact that uh, I had my 70th birthday in 2019. Luckily, just, you know, three and four months before the lockdown. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a party at all. And I had all my old friends and I had my uh, kids all make a speech about me. It wasn't all sort of good and it wasn't all flattering. But... It was just fantastic to have uh, my four children, you know, which is my proudest achievement, um, talk about me in the way that they did. And it makes me feel that I have achieved something. That's nice. That's really nice. And you don't look a day over 60. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think, I think that um, your cycling must contribute to, to, to that as well. Well, it's a medical fact that, it, that cycling does it does do fantastic things in terms of your muscles and stuff like that. You know, you have the you have the you know the trouble is when you do get old, and this is something that another thing that I do really appreciate nowadays is is your health and not to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the cycling, you know, makes me feel young quite honestly. I've got a fabulous bike, a carbon fibre, very lightweight road bike, which I tear along. I had a race today with somebody. Um, Brilliant. And, and you know, it was a fantastic thing to overtake them because they were obviously about half my age and something like that. So it does make you feel young and it keeps you young. And uh, I would never ever cycle 25 miles every day if I was still running Ratners because if you're running a public company you can't go off and cycle for two hours every day Mm -hmm. Uh, so that is when you ask your question about (laughs) would I still have said it if I knew the repercussions well there you are that's a that's a positive see there's a positive in everything I think everything happens for a reason and everything happens the way it's meant to when it when it is the time and if that hadn't have happened, you probably wouldn't be in the picture of health that you're in. And I think, especially this past year, there's been, there's never been a more important time in the history of mankind to say, you know, you do need to look after your health and, you know, the longevity of your life depends on what you choose to eat and whether you choose to exercise or not. And, you know, what you do to, to maintain your physical and mental health because exercise isn't just about how you look it's how you feel and what it does does for your for your mindset as well and um, I had a not an argument but someone told me to stop whinging about the gyms being closed I'm like well hold on a minute just because you're okay with that doesn't mean that I am and you don't understand the reasons that I need that so finding the thing that works for you and fits in with, with your life for your health, I think is really, really important to, to do. Well, I think, you know, that mental health is a big issue and there's no magic uh, bullet. But, and I'm not saying that health, you know, doing exercise, fitness is panacea, but it certainly works for me. Uh, when I, you know, had all my troubles and stuff like that, it is, it really, if you've gone up for a hard cycle and you've gone up a very steep hill, it literally, albeit temporarily, all your troubles disappear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still wake up in the morning and I'm feeling shit. You know, I've had a bad, I'm having a bad day. Like everybody, everybody does that. Nobody, this is just normal. Whatever your situation is, it's just the chemicals in us. We have a shitty day and we feel depressed and low and whenever I do that I get on the bike and I feel better and I've added to that you know these long walks as well Mm -hmm. and it does work I mean and I've tried other stuff and I do think a lot of people that are struggling during this pandemic uh, 
would really benefit enormously by just getting out into the fresh air, going for a long walk, going up a hill, getting the endorphins going. It works, you know. I mean, hundreds of years ago when we used to live a life outside, there wasn't these problems. No. I'm not an expert, but I'm just seeing it from where I am. Being, being outside makes a huge difference. You know, we are creatures of of the, the earth, you know, being outside. It's like all of the grounding, you know, putting your feet in, in the ground, getting in the sea and things like that. That does wonders, wonders for so many people. And when I'm near the sea, I, I feel at peace. Like whatever's going on, like it's, uh, there's something that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll go to Cornwall. Hopefully we'll be going to Cornwall this year. And as soon as I get down there, I sit there and just look at the sea and everything's, everything's fine. Okay, everything, everything makes sense when you, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, I get you. So will that be the first place you go to when everything's lifted? Yes, because yeah. well, we can take the dog. We were going to go in March. That's not going to happen. But we're booked in June. So that's something to look forward to. Um, Excellent. Uh, we won't be able to go on the long cliff walks because of the dog limping along, but we'll be able to go to the pubs and we'll be able to go to the restaurants and uh, eat a lot and drink a lot. So, you yeah, know, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Perfect health-wise. You know, I still have <laughs> my bottle of wine, red wine, and I still smoke the occasional cigar. So, you have to do what makes you happy. So would you say you're happy overall? Overall, yes, uh, I'm very happy. Um, I just, you know, as you get older, you just appreciate, <laughs> I think you appreciate just being still around. And uh, the fact that, uh, you know, I've got a lovely family life. And uh, even in this lockdown, I've missed all, the, all my friends and stuff like that. Uh, so the thing that's keeping me happy is looking forward to the lockdown ending and to mm -hmm. be able to resume all, the, all that that I did before going out um, and realising that how much I'm going to appreciate it because I've learned from when the seven years when I, called, when I lost everything uh, and then I got back some money and I started going on holiday again and I started going out again. I started really enjoying it, appreciating it much more than I did first time around. So I think when this lockdown ends, uh, a lot of things that we all took for granted, like seeing our friends and our relatives and going to restaurants and pubs, going to the cinema, all the just the normal things in life, we will really enjoy and appreciate much more simply because they've been taken away from us. And human nature is a bit like that. You don't appreciate things till you lose them. Yeah, yeah, quite right. So what would your top tips for being confident in yourself um, pre and post lockdown? I'm not confident in myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm on this um, clubhouse. My wife gives me a hard time because uh, first, I don't know how it works. Yeah. And B, uh, you have to take a room as far as I understand and start making a whole Oh, I did my speech, I was, you know, that's something different. But to just go on Clubhouse and have the confidence of just telling everybody, you know, about putting the world to rights and stuff like that, I would couldn't do at all. So I'm quite a shy person, so I can't give you any tips. What would you what what do you think you would need to to change that? Because the way the way you talk, the, the the persona you have, and you put yourself out there, and you know, if you can stand in front of, you know, thousands of people and, and talk, then surely that's something that you can replicate. Well, when I stand in front of thousands of people and talk, I talk about a subject which I know that people are interested in. My downfall, um, albeit it works to a certain degree because I've made a comeback, but I've done it so many times. And I do it in a self-deprecating way. There's no point in going up there and saying how wonderful you are or going up there conversely and saying what an idiot you are and that the press are really bad people and that I've 
got the short straw, you know, self-pitying is not a very pleasant trait. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, you could argue that I've been, you know, I've paid a ridiculously high price for what I said, just a joke. But there's no point in me saying that and sort of moaning about everybody else. I blame myself. And that's what I do in my speech. I completely blame myself. And um, it works in terms of the audience because they can relate to it. Mm -hmm. They can see that they've made mistakes in life that they regret and have paid the price, albeit not as much as mine so when I get up I'm very confident about what I what I'm talking about uh if I got on uh, clubhouse and just sort of preached off like Rob does who's brilliant Rob Moore who's my co-author on the book he's brilliant he can talk about he could be on one of these uh programs on um shopping channel and just talk about <laughs> talk endlessly. don't tell him I said that uh it's, you know like QVC selling. <laughs> Absolutely. He could talk, you know, for, for England. He'd be brilliant. In fact, somebody went there along for an interview to QVC and they handed them a pencil and they say, talk about this pencil for half an hour. So, you know, I couldn't do that. I can talk about myself, but, you know. So it's, I, you know, funny enough, a lot of people that are successful at something have enormous fear of it. You know, you hear this with actors. They have mm-hmm. terrible, the best actors often have stage fright and stuff like that. So what I would say to people is try and overcome those fears because it might be that that's where your success is going to lie. And where the magic happens. Yeah. So what made you come to our mastermind retreat in Dubai and Cayman? And which one did you prefer? Well, I preferred the Cayman to Dubai because I liked the Caymans. Yeah. And it was just seven miles of white sand and beautiful sea and really nice people, actually, because you've got all these American people sort of avoiding tax. <laughs> Uh, I was probably the only person there. Uh, my idea there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's quite an interest. Everything was ridiculously expensive, wasn't it? Yeah. Wing Barbados was expensive. That was ridiculously expensive. It's Dubai. I don't know. I like them both, you know. Uh, actually, it was my perfect holiday because if I go away and just sit around and read a book for two weeks, I begin to get very bored and uh, fat and miserable. So it was a perfect balance of work, meeting you and your mum and all those others, chatting about work and then going back and lying on the beach for a bit. And then, you know, it was just fabulous. I really enjoyed it. And um, it's a shame that we haven't been able to do it this year. Yeah, so I may have to invite you on my retreat in Barbados. I'm coming. Excellent. <laughs> so I'm planning it. Um, we were going to do it sooner. and um, was, I was going to do it in Mallorca, but obviously I left there, moved to Barbados, and um, I've hired um, Alfie Best's Monkey Hill Villa, which is set on like two acres of land. Um, absolutely phenomenal place. So I'm really looking forward to be able to to do that and help people in in a different way and incorporate some health stuff into that as well. So you're not there just temporarily? Um, no, so I'm on the welcome stamp. I've been here four months. Um, the, the welcome stamp's a year, so I can't do the maths, what, eight months left. <laughs> um, okay. But given this lockdown, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll give us an extra month because we have to be prisoners in our own homes. <laughs> quite a prison yeah um, I mean there are worse places to be in prison but um, yeah so I'm I'm planning planning on doing that in October and hoping that some travel restrictions have been lifted by then and um, yeah just bring some people together and and do a similar thing to what we did in Cayman well count me in awesome thank you so you've heard it here first people (laughs) 
So I'm going to let you go now. I could talk to you all day long, of course. Um, so if you could leave people with one top tip for having a successful life, what would it be? Oh, uh, I would probably say don't give up because it's inevitable that you're going to be knocked back, that you are going to have setbacks. But look at that as a plus. Uh, my nephew went to uh, apply for a job and he was very upset because he didn't get it. And he said it's the third time that he's been for an interview and turned down. And I said, well, actually, the average amount of rejections you get before you get the job is about six or seven. Mm -hmm. That's the average before you actually get it. So the fact that you've only you you you've been turned down is good. You're you're heading towards success. Failure is the route to success. You've had three rejections, so you've only probably by the law of averages got two or three more, and you've got the job. So you're in the right. You're going in the right direction. Uh, and that is life. Life is not just getting up in the morning and everything falling into place. Life is things going wrong, challenges, obstacles, people trying to stop you doing what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And when you overcome those difficulties, then you get a lot of pleasure. My very first acquisition was my most difficult acquisition. But boy... When I actually achieved it, I was so much, it was so much more enjoyable because it was difficult. And, you know, when things happen and they're too easy, you don't get any pleasure out of them. So what I would say, you know, tip for life, secret, well, the secret of life is to, uh, if you do get knocked back, dust yourself off, get up and carry on fighting and uh, you'll enjoy it when you do succeed even more than if it came easy. I totally agree with that. If you don't have bad times, you don't appreciate the good stuff as much. Definitely. Absolutely. So where can people find you, follow you, stalk you online? Because only, only online stalking is okay. We don't advocate in-person stalking. Well, I get abused on Twitter at least six times a day by these awesome. people who just think that I'm a poster boy for failure and they just, whenever anybody screws up, they mention me. But, you know, I live with that. Uh, it's good, really, because it helps with my speeches. Um, I'm on Facebook with you. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. I'm on uh, Instagram. So I'm quite a prolific poster. I wouldn't say I'm an influencer, although I have had one or two things go viral, found strangely often on Twitter. Uh, but, yeah, I'm on all the social media things. So. Awesome. So we'll, we'll put all of those links in the um, show Please. notes as well as the links to your book, both your Thank books, you. actually. I really enjoyed. Um, Thank you very much, Natalie. Um, so, yeah, people should definitely buy both of your books and read them and find the, the thing that they need from that. And, you know, if, if you can come back from what you have, people can do anything. It's just a case of wanting it, isn't it? That's my slogan. If I can come back from where I was, then you can come back. <laughs> that was at a low, very low place. And now you're not. And now I see your, your happy resting bitch face. <laughs> Well, I, <laughs> I'm happy. I'm I'm not deliriously happy, but I'm fairly happy. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> life, life isn't. Uh, if only life was like that. <laughs> we all lived in this wonderful fairy tale. Well, thank you so much for coming in on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this. I hope you have too. I certainly love talking to you, Natalie. Thank really you so it. much. Other people have been listening to this, actually. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go and have a look and see if people have commented yeah. at all. Um, but this will go on the podcast. I'll let you know when, when it's out um, live on the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you in Barbados. Can't wait. Awesome. Wait. So I'm going to stop the live on Facebook somehow. There we go. 
So we're, we've, we're finished being live. Um, well, that hour and a half went very quickly. It did. Has it been that long? Wow. Amazing. So that's what I mean. I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could, uh, we could Skype each other. Maybe anyway, we should. I, yeah. I hope that everything goes well with your venture in uh, Barbados. Thank you. Um, it's it's been it's been difficult. Some of the stuff has been very very difficult, but yeah. like like we've said, you have to have struggles in order to appreciate the good stuff. Yeah. And I'm trying to find the gratitude in the shit. <laughs> yeah, well, you're tough enough. You're tougher than me, actually. <laughs> so yeah, that's um, yeah, definitely something. And I'm working towards my my gym money gym idea because that's what i really enjoy i love that i love helping yeah. people with yeah. their. i like yeah. your pictures of you in the gym thank you <laughs> <laughs> so don't take that the wrong way <laughs> absolutely not so uh, cool thank you so I'm much no, Cheers. I, love, I love speaking to you and thank i hope you. you have a great afternoon and we'll speak soon thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with people you think it will help and stay tuned and subscribe for weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube by searching for Natalie Arabella Bailey and join the Better Together for confidence and mindset Facebook community to improve your confidence, network and life.